Welcome back to Fan Fatales. Take a ride with us on the Hogwarts Express. Walk down Main Street with our best super pals. And defy gravity as we talk about all things fandom. Welcome back to Fan Fatales, a member of the Real Fans Podcast Network. I'm Emma. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to Spooktober. <gasps> and today is part two of our discussion of the history of horror films. So we chatted about early influences last week. And yes. this week we're going to be talking about everything 1970 and later. Yes. So we're going to start getting so, into more Stephen King soon. Yes. My boy. Yeah. So, and I'm ready friend. to jump right in. And Ridley's friend. Your best friend's best friend. So. So he doesn't I'm, like to do podcasts. Okay. But here's the thing. I'm only, I'm only two connections away from Stephen King now. Mm-hmm. I'm only two. Two away. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. So shall we start with the 1970s? Yeah, let's get into it. So a new historian this time, um, historian John Kenneth Muir, described the 1970s as a truly eclectic time for horror cinema, noting a mixture of fresh and more personal efforts on film, while other were while others were a resurrection of older characters that have appeared since the 1930s and 40s. Night of the Living Dead had what Newman described as a, quote, slow-burning influence on horror films of the era. Some just adapted the zombie framework, such as The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue of 1974, while others became what Newman said... Others became what Newman described as, quote, the first of the genre auteurs, end quote finding previous great genre directors such as Whale, Luton, and Terrence Fisher had worked within studio settings. Um, these included American directors such as John Carpenter, which we talked about one of his movies last year, Halloween, or one of his franchises, um, Tove Hopper, Wes Craven, and Brian D. Palma, as well as directors working outside America such as Bob Clark, David Cronenberg, and Dario Ar- Argento. Prior to the Night of the Living Dead, the monsters of horror films could could easily be banished or defeated by the end of the film, while Romero's films and the films of other filmmakers would often suggest other horror still lingered after the credits. In the United Kingdom, Amicus, which is a film studio in the United Kingdom, um, focused their production on humorous horror anthologies such as Tales from the Crypt, 1972, and the studio stopped producing horror films by the mid-1970s and closed in 1977. 
By the 1970s, Hammer Films, which was another film studio from the UK, uh, pushed their films in different directions, such as their new series where vampires are implied to be lesbians in The Vampire Lovers of 1970, Lust for a Vampire of also of 1970, and Twins of Evil of 1971. Hammer's Dracula series was updated to contemporary settings with Dracula A.D. 1972, which was from 1972, and its sequel, The Satanic Rites of Dracula of 1973, after which Christopher Lee retired from the Dracula role. Hammer ceased feature film production in the 1970s. Other small booms in the Italian film industry included Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, 1970, um, which created a trend in Italy for the Gaio film. Other smaller trends um, permutated permutated in Italy, such as films involving cannibals, zombies, Nazis, which Newman described as um, disreputable crazes. The rise of zombie films toward um, towards the end of the decade was triggered by Romero's follow-up to Night with Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Nazis? Uh, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Are they like zombie Nazis? I think they're Nazi Nazis. Oh man. I I just feel bad for like okay, what that's like the 1970s, that's like 30 years after World War II. So like those are like the people who like actually went and experienced that. They're like they're like in their, you know, 50s 60s yeah and now they have to watch it on the movies how terrible yeah yikes yeah uh interesting even now i feel like it's like well yeah because there is still like people from that time especially like holocaust survivors i know my school just had one come i think today actually to talk with us yeah it's like yeah don't put it don't don't do that in movies i mean i know somehow it's topical again apparently there's nazis again yeah not like in the same not in the same way but like i don't know i just can't i just can't it's too much too much too much moving on Remakes. Um, let's see. Remakes have proved to be popular choices from horror films of the 70s, with films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978, which is super popular. Also one that gets parodied a lot by child's TV shows. Yeah. Um, and tales based on Dracula, which continued into the late 1970s with John Badham's Dracula of 1979 and Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire of 1979. Also, other American production also placed vampires in a contemporary setting with Count Yorga Vampire in 1970 and Blackula of 1972. Blackula set off a cycle combining the exploration. Black exploitation, excuse me, and horror films with titles like Scream, Blackula, Scream, 1973, Blackenstein of 1973, and Ganja and Hess also of 1973. Yep. Um, European productions 
also continued to feature Dracula and Frankenstein, such as Paul Morice's Blood for Dracula, 1974, and Flesh for Frankenstein, 1973, which both delved into the um, eroticism of their stories. Although not an official remake, the last high-grossing horror film of the decade, Alien, 1979, took B-movie elements from films like It, The Terror from Beyond Space of 1958. Yes. Um, The Exorcist, 1973, was a film that Newman described as getting Hollywood back into horror film production, along with Rosemary's Baby, um... Newman described the film as having the, quote, grit and realism, end quote, that was part of the new Hollywood movement of the period with, quote, nuanced performances, end quote, and non-star actors. Several films with the religious motifs of The Exorcist followed in the 70s in America with films like Abbey, 1974, and The Omen, 1976, as well as Italy with films like A Black Ribbon for Deborah, 1974. And we're going to get to the other one that I think you're thinking of. No, The Exorcist. Okay, this movie, I refuse to watch this movie for a number of reasons. Number one being that the scent was 100% haunted by demons. Yeah. Have you heard these stories of of the girl who plays Reagan in the movie, like, experiencing, like, tra- like traumatic illness while in this movie and doing this movie. And, like, people on set, they were getting messed up. Like, they had to literally stop production because they did not have enough people to continue and the actors were, like, sick and dying in the hospital. Yeah. Like, if you've never heard it, there is a podcast, and I don't remember which one it is, but they talk about The Exorcist and everything that happened on that set, and it is absolutely a thousand percent horrifying. Yes. This is the reason I will never watch this movie. I think it is like, oh, I can't. I just can't. I, I'm afraid that, <laughs> I'm afraid that like something's gonna like crawl through the TV like that lady who wouldn't let her kids watch Hocus Pocus because the witchcraft is coming in through the TV like I fully believe it for the exorcist Hocus Pocus not so much but for the exorcist 100,000 percent yeah yeah that movie's terrifying terrifying bone chilling like oh no absolutely not yeah Anyway, anyway, I'll step off my soapbox now. Um, so following the success of Willard of 1971, a film about killer rats, uh, 1972 had similar films with Stanley, 1972, and an official sequel, Ben of 1972 also. Other films followed in suit, such as Night of the Lupus. Is that lupus as in like the disease lupus? I thought, hold on. The Night of the Lupus. Well, I found the full movie. <laughs> oh. Is it free? No. Ah. Uh, never is. No. It's two ninety nine on Amazon. It has two stars out of five on um, IMDb. Two ninety nine? Ooh, that means it's bad. Um, Giant Mutant Rabbits Terrorize the Southwest is the... <laughs> Giant mutant rabbits? Rabbits. <laughs> okay, I think we have to watch this movie. No. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, 
Other films followed in suit, such as Night of the oh, Lupus, which is... Hold on. Lepus um, is a small constellation, the hair at the foot of Orion, said to represent the hair that pursued him. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. I just wanted so to it's know that... Lepus. Yeah, Lepus. Makes a lot more sense. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. That was from 1972. We also have frogs from 1972. That's it. It's just frogs. <laughs> and then bug... <laughs> I see the the one word titles are really kicking off here. <laughs> Alien, frogs, bug, squirm, 1976. <laughs> and this is what um, Muir described as the turning point in the genre with Jaws. Yep. Another one word title, 1975. <laughs> um, and Jaws actually became the highest grossing film at that point and moved the animal attacks genres quote towards a less fantastic route with giant with sorry excuse me with less giant animals and more real life creatures such as grizzly of 1976 jesus christ (laughs) excuse me even lily even lily can't believe it you hear her she's like oh my gosh i can't believe it so many one word titles um and night creature of 1977 as well as orca of 1977 and jaws 2 1978 i'm so glad you read that and not me because i definitely like read it as okra in my head (laughs) i see it i i almost did and then i was like wait hold on this is all about animals orca makes a lot more sense than okra I thought the same thing, though. Oh, wow. You get to read the first Stephen King. Yes! Um, Newman, so let's go. <laughs> Newman described Jaws as a, quote, concentro of shock, end quote, noting its memorable music theme and its monster not being a product of society like Norman Bates in Psycho or family like in the Texas Chain House, or Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. And these elements were carried over into Carpenter's Halloween, 1978. Newman described that the high-grossing films like Alien, Jaws, and Halloween were hits based on, quote, relentless suspense machines with high visual sophistication, end quote. Along with other main street, a mainstream hit film, De Palma's Carrie of 1976, starring Sissy Spacek, of Halloween began the trend of teenagers becoming ever-present lead characters in horror films, while Carrie itself was a film Newman described as having a, quote, dream logic, end quote, to its supernatural plot, which was extended to the plot of Argento's films like Surprisia of 1977 and Inferno of 1980, whose narrative logic was pushed to the point that Newman described their plots as, quote, making no narrative sense, end quote. Excuse me, Mr. Newman, Carrie's plot points make a lot of sense, okay? Okay. Well, this is my soapbox for Carrie. I love it. That's it. (laughs) It's amazing. The book is fantastic. It's, it all starts, like her period is like the kickstart of it all. It like unlocks the supernatural being inside of her. I love it. I mean, it's like the most, I mean, to me, some people read it as being like degrading. I see it I see it as empowering. Yeah. Some people see it like, oh, well, it's because it all started with her period. And I'm like, yeah, that means she's a badass bee, you know? Yeah. Like, I see it as empowering towards women rather than degrading and sexist. So, but that's just my opinion. Same. 
Moving on into the 1980s, which is one of the epitome eras of horror film, in my opinion. We're getting into nitty-gritty good stuff now. Yeah. Um, the 1980s marked the first time since the early 1960s of horror film fandom, with far more loose organized community of fans rose with the increased publication of fanzines and magazines such as Cinefantastique, Fangoria, and Starburst as horror Cine film... Cinefantastique. Cinefantastique, Fangoria, yeah. and Starburst as horror film festivals like Shock Around the Clock and Dead by Dawn developed. Wow. That is a good name. That is a great name. Newman noted that these directors who created original material in the 1970s, such as Carpenter's, sorry, sorry such as Carpenter, Kronberg, and Hooper, would all at least briefly, quote, play it safe, end quote, with Stephen King adaptations or remakes of the 1950s horror material. Yes. Um, in Italy, the Italian film industry would gradually move towards making films for television instead of theatrical releases. Yes, and the decade started with a high-budgeted production of Argento's Inferno of 1980, and with the death of Mario Bava, Flucci became what historian Roberto... Kutri calls Italy most calls excuse me Italy's most prominent horror film director of the early 1980s. Um, several zombie films were made in the country um, of Italy in the early 80s from Fulci and others. While Argento would continue directing and producing films for others such as Lamberto Baba. As Fulci's health, what? I was just saying, just finish yeah. the Italy bit. As Fulci's health deteriorate, as Fulci's health deteriorated towards the end of the decade, many directors turned to making horror films for Joe D'Amato's Film Marriage Company, independent films, or works for television and home video. In the 1980s, the older horror characters of Dracula and Frankenstein's monster rarely appeared in film outside nostalgic films like The Monster Squad of 1987 and Waxwork of 1988. Vampire-themed films continued, often in the tradition of authors like Anne Rice, where vampirism becomes a lifestyle choice rather than a plague or a curse. And this was reflected in such films as, quote, The Hunger of 1983, excuse me, no quote, just as The Hunger of 1983, The Lost Boys of 1986, and Near Dark of 1986. The Lost Boys is actually starting to make a huge resurgence right now. Yeah. Um, the 1980s highlighted several films about body transformation and men becoming wolves. Special effects and makeup artists like Rob Botton and Rick Baker allowed for more detailed and graphic transformation scenes for creatures such as werewolves in films like An American Werewolf in London and The Howling, while films like Altered States 1980 and The Thing 1982, Videotrome 1983, and The Fly 1986 would show the human body in various forms transformation. Also notice how two of the films on this list are adaptations of previous films. Yeah. The Thing and The Fly. Yep. Um, several other sequels took the revival of 3D film in the 1980s following the surprise hit film Coming At Ya, 1981. And these included Friday the 13th, Part 3, and 19... Whoa, hold on. How did we get to Part 3? We didn't even bring up Part 1 yet. 
I don't know. It wasn't really talked about in the article I found. Okay. Well, I mean, it's mentioned in the next one, but, like, what? <laughs> um, sorry. These included Friday the 13th, Part 3, 1982, Parasite, 1982, and Jaws 3D, 1983. Replacing Frankenstein's monster and Dracula were new popular characters with more general names like Jason Voorhees, Friday the 13th, Michael Myers, Halloween, and Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Unlike the characters of the past who were vampires or created by mad scientists, these characters were seemingly people with common-sounding names who developed the slasher film genre of the era. In his book on the genre, author Adam Rockoff stated that these villains represented a, quote, rogue genre of films, focusing on characters with, quote, tough, problematic, and fiercely individualistic lives. Following the financial success of Friday the 13th from 1980, at least 20 other slasher films appeared in the 1980s alone. These films usually revolved around five properties, unique social settings, campgrounds, schools, holidays, and a crime from the past committed, an accidental drowning, infidelity, scorned lover, and a ready-made group of victims, camp counselors, students, or wedding parties. And the genre was derided by several contemporary film critics of the era, such as Ebert, and often were highly profitable in the box office. Um, other more traditional styles continued into the 1980s, such as supernatural-themed films involving haunted houses, ghosts, and demonic possession. Among the most popular films of this style included my favorite horror movie my favorite movie almost in general i love this movie i've talked about it many times we talked about it last year can you guess what it is it's stanley kubrick's the shining from 1980 uh hooper's high grossing poltergeist also was fit into this style of film as well as films in the amity horror film franchise i'm sorry amityville is that what i said i think so Okay, that one's, I've never been able to say that one. Am, 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 Nittyville, I think. Okay. I've, I've never been able to say that um, one. I know it, but. After the release of films based on Stephen King's books like The Shining and Carrie led to further film adaptations of his novels such as Cujo, 1983, Christine, 1983, The Dead Zone, 1983, and Firestarter, 1984, and Children of the Corn, 1984. King would even direct his own film with Maximum Overdrive in 1986. And we even see Sting, Stephen King films coming out as recently as 2016 yeah. with Dr. Sleep and Pet Cemetery coming out in 2018, I believe. And It, right? And the resurgence of It, yeah. it was also from the 80s. The original is from the 80s. Yeah. Um, let me just make sure that Pet Cemetery was. I think it is. That sounds right. Pet Cemetery, the new one. Why are these the old ones? Uh, 2019. Sorry, Pet Cemetery was 2019, and I believe Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep was also 2019. Wow. Wow, I felt like that came out a long time ago. Well, we only watched it last year. Yeah, but I've seen that movie like four times already. Oh. <laughs> okay, anyway, moving on. 
1990s. Yeah. Let me get back to it. So, horror films of the 1990s also failed to develop as many major new directors. Excuse me. Let me try this again. Horror films of the 1990s also failed to develop as many new major directors of the genre as it had in the 1960s and 70s. Young intended filmmakers such as Kevin Smith, um, Richard Linklater, Michael Moore, and Quentin Tarantino broke into cinema outside of the genre at non-genre festivals like the Sundance Film Festival. Yes. Newman noted that the early 1990s was, quote, not a good time for horror, end quote, noting excessive sequels such as The Exorcist 3 in 1990, Amityville, 1992, It's About Time, 19, from 1992, and returns of sequels to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Muir commented that in the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, the United States didn't really have a, quote, serious enemy, end quote, internally, leading to horror films adapting... Sorry, internationally, leading to horror films adapting to fictional enemies, predominantly within America, with the American government, large businesses, organized religion, and the upper class, as well as supernatural and occult items, such as vampires or Cygnus, filling in the horror villains of the 1990s. Muir described the 1990s, more than any decade before it, as one that blurred genres and transcended existing ones. This led to postmodern horror films such as Wes Craven's New Nightmare, 1994, which examined horror films in an American society, In the Mouth of Madness, 1995, which turns reality into a horror film, and Scream, 1996, which made several references to horror films of the past. The release of Scream, scripted by Kevin Williamson, led to a brief revival of the slasher films, including the Williamson-scripted I Know What You Did Last Summer in 1997. Other styles of teen-oriented horror that were popular in the 90s, but with less visibility than post-Scream films, were films about supernatural youth, such as Mirror Mirror of 1990 and Shrunken Heads of 1994, with the most popular of these films being The Craft of 1996. Cultural conflicts of the 1990s became the backdrop for several horror films of the era, ranging from issues involving abortion, seen in films like The Unborn, 1991, and Alien 3, 1992, political correctness, such as Body Snatchers in 1993, to affirmative action, welfare, and race-related issues seen in The People Under the Stairs, 1991, Tales from the Hood, 1995, and The Village of the Damned, 1995. The rise of other television shows such as Inside Edition, America's Most Wanted, and The Jerry Springer Show, Geraldo and Donahue's horror films often featured anchor women and the TV tabloid hosts as protagonists or supporting characters in films like Man's Best Friend of 1993, Scream 1996, and The Night Flyer of 1997. The rapid growth of technology in the 1990s with the internet and the fears of the year 2000 problem causing the end of the world were reflected in plots of films like The Lawnmower Man, 1992, Brain Scan, 1994, and End of Days, 1999. And following the release of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula of 1992, a small wave of high-budgeted gothic horror romance films were released in the 1990s. This inc- these included Interview with a Vampire of 1994, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of 1994, which we did mention yes. in last week's episode, 
1994, and Mary Riley in 1996. By the end of the 1990s, three films were released that Newman described as, quote, cultural phenomenons, end quote. These included Hideo Natka's Ring, 1998, which along with the South Korean film Whispering Corridors in 1998 was the, first, was the major hit across Asia, leading to sequels and similar ghost stories from Asian countries. The film only crossed over into the Western world after the 1990s. The second major hit was The Sixth Sense, another ghost story which Newman described as making, quote, an instant cliche, end quote, of twist endings. And the last one was the film hit was the low-budget independent film The Blair Witch Project in 1999. And The Blair Witch Project is also the first film to feature a first-person perspective on horror films. Yeah. So, moving into the 2000s, Newman described the first trend of horror films in the 2000s following the success of The Blair Witch Project, predominantly in a parody format, uh, the Bogus Witch Format, or sorry, Bogus Witch Project of 2000, The Blair Underwood <laughs> Project of 2000, um, and the pornographic The Erotic Witch Project of 2000. Yikes! Yeah. Um, other films included similar low-budget imitators, like the St. Francisville Experiment of 2000, with a similar plot to The Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Um, Alexandra Heller Nicholas noted that the popularity of sites like YouTube in 2006 sparked a taste uh, for amateur media, leading to the production of further films in the found-footage horror genre later in the decade with Wreck, 2007, Diary of the Dead, 2007, Cloverfield, 2008, and the particularly financially successful Paranormal Activity in 2007. And there's like a hundred Paranormal Activity movies. They made so many. And following Paranormal Activity, the style was not known for the footage's possible authenticity. What? Yeah. Okay. It was not known... For the authenticity of the footage. Okay. But more of a specific film style. Yeah, okay. Paranormal Activity was not known for the footage of the film's possible authenticity as it was with Blair Witch, but more of a specific film style. Yeah, so it it became, this found footage style became almost, like, instantly parodyable. I mean, like, it's very, there are very particular things that you see in it in film footage so postmodern horror films continued into the 2000s as well with cherry falls 2000 and psycho beach party of 2000 but soon drifted purely into comedy and parody territory with another great franchise uh the scary movie film series and shriek if you know what i did last friday the 13th both credited to 2000 yes um, other teen-oriented series began in the era with Final Destination. Well, the success of the 1999 remake of William Castle's House on Haunted Hill led to a series of remakes in the decade, 13 Ghosts, 2001, Willard, 2003, Dawn of the Dead, 2004, The Fog, 2005, Prom Night, 2008, and The Last House on the Left, 2009. Several film series long left dormant were resurrected in the 2000s, as well with Jason X, 2001, Beyond Reanimator, 2003, Exorcist, The Beginning, 2004, and Land of the Dead in 2005. 
The popularity and innovative approach to zombies, as seen in 28 Days Later of 2002, Shaun of the Dead 2004, and Dawn of the Dead 2004, led to a revival of zombie films in the 2000s, with I Am Legend of 2007, Zombieland 2009, Dead Snow 2009, and Pontypool of 2008. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this not also where we see the beginning of uh, AMC's uh the walking dead probably when did the walking dead the walking dead first episode was released on october 31st 2010 okay so a little bit later but still same realm yeah it's not later by much like one year two years well one year one year 2009 okay yeah. Several films came from Hong Kong, South Korea, Thailand, and Japan in the wake of the success of Ring 1998, and these films mostly involved female detectives using various forms of detective work to learn mysteries about um, malevolent ghosts, female ghosts. These included The Eye, 2002, Darkwater, 2002, and Into the Mirror, 2003. This trend was echoed in the West with films like Fear.com, 2002, They, 2002, and Gothica, 2003. Sorry, I was looking something up. No um, Hollywood also began remaking these Japanese films with The Ring in 2002, Dark Water, 2005, and outside Japanese ghost stories, Asian film industries also began developing what Newman described as bizarre horror films with Uzumaki, 2000, Stacy, 2001, and several films by Tadashi Miyaki. There was what Newman declared to be a, quote, modest revival, end quote, of British horror films in the 2000s, with a tiny trend of war film related, uh, war film -related horror films with The Bunker, 2001, Dog Soldiers, 2002, and The Hollywood Produced, Below, 2002. Outside several independent films and films attempting a style of horror that Dimension Films were making in the 1990s, um, Newman felt that the breakouts of a new British horror were My Little Eye, 2002, 28 Days Later, 2002, Shaun of the Dead, 2004, and The Descent of 2005. At the turn of the millennium, a movement in French cinema known as the New French Extremity was named by film um, programmer James Quant, initially describing art house films that, quote, determined to break every taboo to wade in rivers and of viscera and spumes of sperm to fill each frame with flesh, nouvelle or gnarled, and subject it to all matter of penetration, mutilation, and defilement. Oh my god! In her book, Films of the New French Extremity, Alexandra West found that, the, that some of the directors started making horror films that would fit their art house standards, such as Claire Dennis's Trouble Every Day, 2001, and Marina D. Van's In My Skin, 2002, which led to other directors to make more what West described as, quote, outright horror films, end quote, uh, such as Alexandra Aja's High Tension, 2003, and Xavier Jen's Frontiers, 2007. 
And some of the horror, these horror films of the new French extremity movement would regularly place on best of genre lists, such as Martyrs 2008, Inside 2007, and High Tension. West described journals and fans as seeing the more horror-oriented films of the movement as, quote, an intellectual sibling, end quote, to the emerging trend of, quote, torture porn. Yep. David Edelstein of the New York Times coined a term for a genre he described as, quote, torture porn. In a 2006 article, as a label for films described, often retroactively, to over 40 films since 2003. Edelstein lumped in such films as Saw, absolutely, 100% fits into that genre, The Devil's Rejects 2005, and Wolf Creek of 2005. Under this banner suggesting an audience a titillating and shocking uh, experience, this pushed audiences to the margins of depravity in order to, quote, feel something. The label was described as, quote, intense bodily acts and visible bodily representations to produce uneasy reactions. One could also lump the human centipede films into this genre. Most definitely. Um, Kevin Whitmore, you, uh, Kevin Whitmore, using the Saw film series, suggested these films... These films reflected a post-9-11 attitude towards increasing pessimism, specifically one of, quote, no redemption, no hope, no expectations that we're going to be okay, end quote. Newman also noted a post-9-11 trend of stories that tend to rework or redo a reality that was too difficult to handle, similar to films like The Sixth Sense or The Matrix. Horror films that follow this trend include ghost stories with films like The Others, 2001, and The Orphanage in 2007. Also in this era of the 2000s, we see the introduction of the musical horror film with Sweeney Todd coming out in 2007. Yeah. We also see, I know we mentioned parody films a little bit, but... um, I don't feel like we touched so much on it. I mean, there's so many parody films out yeah. there, especially in the horror genre. Films, TV shows, everything. Scream Queens. Yeah. I mean, um, if we're going to talk about musicals, uh, Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror. That's definitely the 80s, but I would figure, I would picture that it's not necessarily horror. It's titled horror, and it's True. based off of sci-fi horror film. But I think that's more of like, I don't even know. Rocky Horror is like cult films. It's in its own genre. Yeah. I mean, we also did not mention in um, the uh, when we were talking about the 80s, um, teen films like The Heathers, right? Yeah. That's another kind of horror-ish film. And it's I mean, kind of in that weird... Kind of Beetlejuice. Yeah. We didn't talk about Beetlejuice, which is another cult classic. There's a whole... Yeah, they talk about it in the Universal, um, like, horror makeup show that they do at Universal Orlando. They talk about Beetlejuice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Beetlejuice and and the Heathers and Rocky Horror and there's a very small, small group of films from, like, the 80s and 90s that are, like, cult classics the lost boys is another one i mean we mentioned it but it's you know there's an occult following for these films and they 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 have very big influences outside of yeah 
horror films in general. I mean, V. Neal, who did the makeup on Beetlejuice, she's one of like the most critically acclaimed makeup artists in all of Hollywood. And she's fantastic. She's done Beetlejuice. She's done The Dark Knight. She's done so many things. Yeah. Like, she's a fantastic makeup artist. And I don't, I think I had to mention her there. There you go. Yeah. So after the film studio Bloomhouse had success with Paranormal Activity of 2007, the studio continued to films that grew to become hits of the 2010s with film series and Insidious, and this led to what Newman described as the company's policy on, quote, commercial savvy with thematic risk that's often paid off, end quote, including Get Out, 2017, The Invisible Man of 2020, Happy Death Day of 2017, and series like The Purge. Laura Bradley, in her article for Vanity Fair, noted that both large and small film studios began noticing Bloomhouse's success, including A24, who did not specialize in horror or genre films, made their names grow popular with films like The Witch in 2015, Hereditary in 2018, and Midsommar in 2019. Um, Bradley commented how some of these films were classified as, quote, elevated horror, end quote, declaring, quote, poor aficionados and some critics pushed back against the notion that these films are doing something entirely new, end quote, noting their roots in films like Night of the Living Dead, 1968, and Rosemary's Baby in 1968. I just have to say, Midsommar, all of the advertisements for that film were so misleading. Yeah, I, I haven't I seen watched- it, but I know the ending of it. I watched the first, like, 20 minutes of that movie, and I was like, nope, and I just turned it off. I was like, I can't do this. I, I didn't even watch. It wasn't even 20 minutes. It was, like, 10 minutes, and I was like, oh, uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's so misleading. You think it's just going to be, like, a little bit more of, like, an artsy piece, and it's not. It's not. <laughs> the bear suit at the end. I didn't even get there. I mean, I it's even Florence Pugh and the guy who played the cousin in Narnia. Which, it's fine. They're great. I love Florence Pugh. She's great. But that movie's misleading as hell. I love how I don't know the guy who played the cousin in Narnia, but that that's my best example. And he was also in Maze Runner, that kid. I haven't. Um... The, the annoying cousin that you didn't like. I know. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know his name. Okay. Um, in the early 2010s, there became a wave of horror films that showed what Virginie Selvier noted, describing as having psychedelic tendency that was inspired by experimentation of the 1970s and its subgenres, specifically folk horror. This trend began with two films, Enter the Void from 2009 and Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010. Since these films, a series of films that Selvier described as, sorry, I don't know what c'est la vie. That sounds like c'est la vie. That's not it. I don't know. C'est la vie. I'm going to go with that. Described as being a quote, Calmutus trip or creepy dreams, end quote. And these were released such as Barbarian, sorry, Burbarian Sound Studio in 2011. Under the Skin, 2013, and We Are the Flesh of 2016, as well as Climax of 2018. These films do not always share the consciousness-expanding spirit of the 1960s and 70s. But the reason for these trends 
uh, tended to be both from filmmakers who grew up in the 70s, as well as home video distributors such as Arrow Video. Shameless and Nucleus Films, uh, sorry, excuse me, with home distributors such as Arrow Video, Shameless, and Nucleus Films releasing restorations of more outlandish and forgotten films of the original psychedelic era. The expansion of international streaming media services is thought to have boosted the popularity of horror. Several horror television series on Netflix, such as The Haunting of Hill House, became successes for the platform. Bloomhouse partnered with Amazon Prime Video for distribution, and Shudder, a streaming service dedicated primarily for horror titles, was launched in 2015 and grew in popularity in subsequent years. Streaming was cited as bringing increased international attention to Southeast Asian horror films, particularly Indonesian titles such as Joko Anwar's Satan's Slaves and Impedigore and Rose uh, and Roe from Malaysia. Adapted from the Stephen King novel, it, 2017, set a box office record for horror films by grossing 200, sorry, $123.1 million on opening weekend in the United States and nearly $185 million globally. The success of It led to further King novels being adapted, including It, Chapter 2, 2019, Pet Cemetery of 2019, and Doctor Sleep of 2019. Which I think goes to show that the traditional horror films also don't have a leg to stand on. Like, they do have a leg to stand on in the yeah. era of avant-garde and crazy, weird stuff. There's also some really traditional horror films, like Ready or Not. Yeah. And, I mean, like, we saw, um, we watched Mother, which is another one of those avant-garde show, uh, movies, avant-garde uh, psychedelic-type films. Um, <laughs> we both did not like no. it. Um, but but I think I think there's something to say about true horror films and how they've really stood the test of time with the newer Stephen King releases, as well as you know newer films like Ready or Not and um, oh gosh, what's the other one that just came out recently that looked really good? Oh, I forget. I can't remember. But there's a few of them out there that were from this era and that were very traditional and are great. Yeah. So now let's move into the 2020s. It's very short because we're only we're in it two years in, but yeah. So the COVID-19 pandemic that began in 2020 um, disrupted the film industry, leading to the release of several horror films to be po- to be postponed, such as A Quiet Place Part Two in 2020 and Candyman 2021, while other films like Censor 2021 had production halted. A Quiet Place is another example of a traditional horror movie, just saying. Yeah. Um, so during lockdown, streaming for films in... During lockdown, streaming for films featuring fictional apocalypses increases like Parasite. Yes. Found footage horror found itself imposed into films set on desktops in Zoom meetings with host 2020 a film shot and set during the quarantine period of 2020 to what Newman described as further enhancing the, quote, this really happened, end quote, aspect of the genre. And the last point that I'd like to make is something that we just talked about at work yesterday, um, and that that is that the 2022 film Terrifier 2 has recently made headlines 
as well as broken records because theater patrons have been throwing up watching this film because of just how incredibly gory this film is. Wow. Yes. It's crazy. It is, oh gosh, people people turned the trailer on at work. I couldn't even listen to it. All I know is that there's clowns in it. Never going to see it. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the clown thing. I think it's because of the like killer clowns thing that happened in like 2016. Yup. I'm terrified of clowns. Same. Dead, like, dead honest. I am terrified of clowns. And this film is clowns who like gruesomely murder people. At least that's what I heard about the trailer. And that's what it sounded like. And it's disgusting. It's Okay, so I guess what it is is it's what I heard is there's a kid who's like dressing up as like a real clown murderer. Interesting. Like he's like it's not just like, oh, I'm a axe wielding clown. No. Yeah. Is it's like based off of a true crime. Like, not that actually happened. That's like his his costume is like based off of a crime that happened in the universe of this film. At least I think. This is again very, very limited knowledge about this. Yeah. Um but yeah. It's pretty gory, and people have been really upset and throwing up and leaving. You know what other film we never even talked about? What? From the 90s, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, wow. I'm surprised that that wasn't in here. I think it's probably because it was more psychological and not, like, slasher like a lot of the other. But others. we talked about The Shining. The Shining True. is a psychological horror. Here's the thing. Silence of the Lambs. It's... We've said this before. It's like an episode of SVU. It's yeah. more of a thriller than it is a horror film. Yeah. Maybe Not that's even. why. It's, it's like it's like suspense. That's it. It's just a little suspense, really. Yeah. If you like Law & Order, if you like NCIS, if you like... Um, what other cop shows? Cop shows. If you just like cop shows. Yeah. You'll like that movie. It's a little gross in the beginning. There's like a giant bloated dead body, but that's about it. Oh, and there is a guy making a skin suit. That's a little weird. Yeah. Also, I just want to talk about this for like two seconds. Okay. So, the Human Centipede films. Mind you, I don't really watch horror films. I don't either. But here's the thing. I've watched a lot of videos about the Human Centipede films, and I'm concerned. Yeah. So, there's the first Human Centipede, which is one doctor sewing three people together, mouth to butt, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Three people sewn together. So then in the second one, I can't remember exactly what it is in the second one, but it's completely different storyline. Completely different, not even related. The third human centipede is a uh, prison prison ward in Texas who saw the first human centipede movie and said i'm gonna do that but with a hundred people and it's people who have been uh in prison for life and if they have to leave they just like unlink out of the human centipede and then link back up when they're done and it's so weird but the weird thing is all three of them are played so the actor in the first movie yeah same actor in the third movie interesting and then the actor in the second movie is also in the third movie. Yeah. But they're different characters. Like, like, what? Oh my god. It's bizarre. 
It is bizarre. Yes. There's a girl on TikTok who goes into way more detail about it. And she, like, this is how I, like, know most of this. She is so great. I'm going to find her handle. And give me a second. You know what's going to be interesting is one of the fun fa- or fandom facts for this week. It's actually yeah. one that you read. Will literally okay. be going on the day that you, um, or that this episode is released. Perfect. So yeah. I can't find her handle on TikTok, okay. but it, she's we'll tag great. It at she some explains point. them. Yeah, I'll figure it out and I'll find it. She's great. They're great. Yeah. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, let's see. Are there any other horror movies that I wanted to talk about that we haven't touched upon? I don't think so. I don't think so. One of my newest favorites is Ready or Not, so I'm definitely watching that this year. Yeah. No. I'm trying to think. Have I seen any other? No. The last one I think I saw in the th- in the theater was Doctor Sleep. I haven't seen any horror films in the theaters. Um, I think one of the only R-rated films I've seen in the theaters was The Joker. One could. It, it's rated R. It is. Yeah, it's kind of a horror film. Yeah. Kinda. Kinda. I haven't even watched Marvel's, whatever it's called, Werewolf by Night or whatever. I don't it, know. It, it's it's supposed to emulate early genre horror films. So like what we talked about last episode, it's awesome. like black and white, and it kind of follows like the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties aesthetic. From oh, I love what that. I've seen. I just haven't seen it yet, but it is from Marvel Studios. Love it. Yeah, it's so. on Disney Plus. Yeah. We're going to get into this fandom news for yes. this week, I think. So speaking of Marvel and Disney+, Plus, WandaVision star Emma Caulfield, who played Dottie slash Sarah, is returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Agatha, Coven of Chaos. Krista Rodriguez and Eric Jensen will join Paul Bettany and Jeremy Pope in Manhattan Theater Club's production of The Collaboration. So we have gotten the first teaser for Titan Season 4, which debuts on HBO Max on November 3rd. The enchanting holiday season returns to Disneyland Resort on November 11th. Cue the music because we've been waiting for this one for a while. At least I have. Fantasmic returns to Disney's Hollywood Studios soon in November of 2022. They didn't give us a release date. They just said November. But perfect in time for the holiday season to get some Mickey. I really hope they have cut out the Pocahontas section and brought the Peter Pan one from Disneyland over. We'll see. We'll see. Magic Band Plus will make its way to the West Coast at Disneyland. Excuse me. Magic Band Plus will make its West Coast debut at Disneyland the day that it's released, which... What? On the day that this... Oh. So I'm just going to say today. Yeah. So, Magic Band Plus will make its West Coast debut at Disneyland today, October 26th. Yes. So, we got even more characters, specifically those found in Greek mythology, um, cast for the Percy Jackson television series. WWE wrestler Adam Copeland will be portraying Ares, the god of war. Suzanne Cryer will be playing Echidna, who is known in Greek mythology as the mother of all monsters. 
And finally, Jessica Parker Kennedy was cast as Medusa. That's awesome. Honestly, like, this cast, as it comes out more and more of, like, the gods and the parents being, like, these famous people, I'm like, yes. Jason Robert Brown will conduct all seven performances of Parade at New York City Center starting, sorry, starring Ben Platt, Michaela Diamond, Gaten Matarazzo, and more. Patty Lapone has reportedly given up her actor's equity card, actually yesterday, um, October 17th, telling Broadway World, quote, When the run of company ended this past July, I knew I wouldn't be on stage for a very long time, end quote. But this comes after the, like, really weird week of Broadway drama that happened last week with the Hadestown thing. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it, but... I found it interesting to time. Yeah, timing is a little weird. Mm-hmm. Marvel has delayed some of the biggest MCU movies on this schedule. Blade was moved from November 3rd of 2023 to August 6th of 2024. Deadpool 3 was moved from August 6th of 2024 to November 8th of 2024. Fantastic Four was moved from November 8th of 2024 to February 14th of 2025. And Secret Wars was moved from November 7th of 2025 to May 1st of 2026. Another character dining spot is reopening in Walt Disney World. Akashu's Royal Banquet Hall, with the princesses included in Epcot's Norway, will be opening again on November 4th of this year. Ariana DeBose will appear live in concert at the Palladium in London this spring. Nearly a decade after the release of The Blood of Olympus, Percy Jackson, Annabeth Chase, and Grover Underwood will star in a new, brand new adventure from Rick Riordan. Uh, Rick Riordan. Sorry. Still get his name wrong after finding out that it's Riordan instead of Riordan. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods, will go on sale on September 26th of 2023. Wow. I'm, Emma's got a lot of reading. <laughs> I'm very happy. I like cried when I found out the news today because I was like, <gasps> more because we've been getting stuff in the Riordan verse recently, but it hasn't included Percy, Annabeth, and Grover, who were his original three in The mm-hmm. Lightning Thief in like 2003, 2004. That kind of started mm-hmm. his career. So it's kind of going back to the beginning. And of course, next year will be hopefully when the Percy Jackson show is released. And next year is the year of Percy Jackson and Kingdom Keepers for me. Nice. Because Kingdom Keepers, The Inheritance comes out February 21st of 2023. Look at these. Look at this. All these authors that you thought were done writing in these series all of a sudden are like, I'm going to pick it up again. Yeah. Yeah. COVID changed people. Yeah. So shall we get so, into this outro? Yeah, and we have some exciting news on this yes. outro. So yes. you're so gonna want to stick around. It. Yes. Um. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fan Fatales. We are a proud part of the Real Fans Podcast Network. That's right. And if you want to check out more shows on the network, you can find them at rf4rm.com. Next week, drum roll, please. We will be happening. We will be having a surprise bonus episode where we talk about a few of our favorite fall and Halloween things releasing on Monday, October 31st. So, Halloween. Yep. Bye.
Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to us on YouTube. Please leave us a review and comment down below to tell us what you thought of the show. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FamFatalsPod for the latest updates. Now, Emma, where can the people find you on social media? So my Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are all at SniffyEmma, which is S-N-I-P-P-Y-A-M-M-A. What about you, Gabby? I'm at Gabby Gent on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. That's G-A-B-Y-J-E-N-T. Our editing is by the wonderful Carol Meyer. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Bye! Bye. The views expressed in this episode do not affect the brain.